So in 1996, I was in the U.S. Coast Guard, and I got transferred. I was, uh, for the two years previous to that, 94 through 96, I was on a 180-foot ship out of Seattle, Washington. And then I got promoted. I got this transfer to a, a patrol boat, 110-foot patrol boat out of Port Angeles, Washington. And so I go to show up at this new duty station. I'm very excited because now, you know, I've increased in rank a little bit, and I'm going to be in charge of uh, some of the engineering systems on there. So I, I report on board, and I go into the engine room. I'm, like, so stoked to see this engine room because these are these really high-performance engines. And if you care about that stuff, we can talk later. It's really fun. Uh, so I, I open the door, and I'm like squinting it's so bright there's polished brass and chrome even the deck plates are polished aluminum it's just like shining in my face I'm thinking this is beautiful it's gonna be a lot of work but I've got these junior enlisted guys who are gonna polish it up anyway so I won't have to worry about that and in the distance in the corner I see this bald head uh, shining deck plates I'm like, all right there's already a guy working in there and he's got knee pads on and I'm like cool I'll go introduce myself so I walk up to this guy and as soon as I get up to him, I see on his collar, which is where you have your rank, big anchors. And I realize that this is the chief engineer, my boss in charge of all the engineering department. And he's shining deck plates in the engine room. And all of a sudden, in an instant, my definition of what it meant to be chief was altered forever. You see, back at the other ship, all I knew about chiefs was that they drank gallons of coffee every day, smoked two packs of cigarettes, and were pretty good at playing cards. But now, my definition of chief was changed. This evening, we're going to look at a text that I think redefines many of our images of God. And as we look at the text, I want you to consider two questions. Now, if you're a note taker, in your bulletin, there's a sermon note blank. If, if that's how you learn, you might want to yeah, write down these two questions. The questions are, number one, what does it mean for Jesus to be Lord and God? What does it mean for Jesus to be Lord and God? And the second question, what does it look like for me to be a disciple of Jesus? What does it look like for me to be a disciple of Jesus? Now the text we're going to look at this evening is John 13, verses 1 through 17. That's on page 738 of your pew Bible if you want to follow along. I'm reading from a little different version, but you'll get the gist of it. And would you please stand one more time as we read the gospel? That's 738 in your pew Bible. Now, before the feast of the Passover, Jesus, knowing that his hour had come, that he would depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. And during supper, the devil, having already put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon, to betray him, and Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands, and that he had come from God and was going back to God, he got up. He got up from supper, laid aside his garments, and taking a towel, he girded himself. Then he poured water into the basin, and he began to wash the disciples' feet, and to wipe them with the towel with which he was girded. And so he came to Simon Peter, and he said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? And Jesus answered and said to him, What I do to you now, you do not realize, but you will understand hereafter. And Peter said to him, Never shall you wash my feet. And Jesus answered him, If I do not wash you, you have no part with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, then wash not only my feet, but also my hands and my head. And Jesus said to him, He who is bathed needs only to wash his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not all of you. 
for he knew the one who was betraying him. And for this reason he said, Not all of you are clean. So when he had washed their feet and taken his garments and reclined at the table again, he said to them, Do you know what I've done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you're right, for so I am. If I then, the Lord and the teacher, washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I gave you an example that you also should do as I do to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a slave is not greater than his master, nor is the one who is sent greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, you are blessed if you do them. You be seated. Well, there's lots of details in that story. And the problem with the sermon is it's only so long and you can only hit so much. But we do need to pay attention to the beginning introduction that we have here. First of all, what is the setting? Just yell out, what is the setting? What time of year is it that the story takes place? Anyone venture to guess? Passover. Passover. Now, this is really important, and I'll show you why. But first of all, if, if you're kind of rusty on Passover, or maybe you don't know what that is, let me just review it real quickly. Nearly 1,500 years before Jesus was even uh, on the earth, the people of Israel were captives in Egypt. They were crying out to God that he would rescue them from the oppressive rule of Pharaoh. And God heard their cry, and he anointed a leader named Moses to rescue them. He said, Moses, I want you to go to Pharaoh, and I want you to demand that he let the people go. Moses goes to Pharaoh. Pharaoh laughs at him, basically. says, I'm not letting these people go. And so what God does is he starts sending these plagues on Egypt. He says, okay, you're not going to let them go. I'm going to send this plague of, let's say, gnats, for instance. That was one of the plagues. And so these gnats are biting everybody. And Pharaoh says, uncle, uncle, please, I'll let the people go. And so God makes the gnats go away. I'm paraphrasing with the uncle, right? But um, so the gnats go away. And then Pharaoh says, I'm not letting the people go. So then God sends another plague. And one of them was frogs. And all these frogs are jumping on the bed and in people's food and in their soup and and pharaoh says well let the people go fine fine this cycle goes on 10 times on the 10th time moses comes back with the worst plague of all he says pharaoh if you do not let the people go the angel of death is going to come and take the firstborn male of every single family in egypt pharaoh says I'm calling your bluff. I am not going to let the people go. So what happened was, God warned the people of Israel, and he said this, Tonight that angel of death is going to come, but what you need to do is each household, extended family, needs to sacrifice a lamb. You wipe the blood of that lamb over the doorpost of your house, and when the angel of death swoops through Egypt, they will pass over, pass over your house, and you'll be protected, and then you can escape. Well, now here's why I took the time to recap that story. Because John tells us that Jesus' hour had come. Up until this point in John's gospel, it wasn't Jesus' hour. You may recall in chapter 2 when Jesus is at the wedding and the wine runs out and his mom wants him to do something about it. And he says, what has that got to do with us? My hour has not yet come. And all up until this point, Jesus' hour had not yet come. Now, John tells us that Jesus' hour had come. This hour is another way of saying his time had come. His time to go to the cross. His time to be the sacrifice, like the Passover lamb, that would save us all from our sin. And this should come as no surprise because in John chapter 1, John the Baptist is out preaching. And he sees Jesus. And this is the first encounter with Jesus for the first time in the, in the gospel. And does anyone remember what John the Baptist says when he sees Jesus for the first time? He yells something out. Come on now, quiz. Yes! 
who takes away the sin of the world. He sees Jesus coming and he just says, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Now what is John, the master storyteller, doing here by telling us it's Passover time? Passover time, his hour had come. Jesus is that Passover lamb. He's the ultimate Passover sacrifice, the one that would take away the sin of the world, the one that would rescue everyone who believes in him. Jesus knows his hour had come. He knows he's going to leave this world and be with the Father. But he loved his own, the ones that God had given him, his disciples and those who had, who had believed in Jesus. He loved his own even to the end. And the Greek word behind this, this English end is called telos. Telos can mean end or it can mean also eternity. So Jesus loved these whom he was following him all the way to the end. Now, here's why that's significant. Because if you keep reading in the gospel account, every one of those disciples, even Jesus' closest buddies, turn their back on him when he gets arrested and crucified. They're nowhere to be found. They're afraid. They cower. But if you keep reading the rest of the New Testament, something happens. They repent. They come back. And Jesus accepts them. He loves them to the end. You know why that's good news for us? Because he does not give up on you and I. I don't know what you think about yourself right now when you came in through those doors. We all have our church faces on and we're, we're smiling. One of our core values here is authenticity and acceptance. You don't have to be like that. You don't have to pretend. I know sometimes I come in with a lot of crap on my shoulders. Jesus does not give up on you and me. He loves us to the end. And that's good news and that's not even the main part of the story. So I think this is a pretty cool passage. Jesus knows that in about 24 hours, he's going to be betrayed and crucified. His closest friends are going to leave him. But he does not give up on them. Now, John wants us to know three main things. He wants us to know, actually, that Jesus knows three main things. Okay? The first thing that Jesus knows is that his hour is come. It's time for him to go to the cross. I just explained all that, so that's number one. Number two, he knows that the devil, who is also known as Satan, and that word means accuser, that this accuser has seduced one of his buddies, Judas, into betraying him. Jesus already knows that. He knows his hour has come, and he knows that Judas is going to betray him. John goes to great lengths to let us know that Jesus knows what's going on. And this is why that's important. Jesus is not the poor victim of an evil plot to take his life. Jesus intentionally gave his life. He laid it down. And that's why John tells us that Jesus already knows who's going to betray him. His hour has come. He knows who's going to betray him. And number three, Jesus knows where he's from and where he's going. Jesus knows where he's from and where he's going. You know, in our culture, it's a very commonplace thing to talk about finding ourselves, right? To really knowing who we are in this, in this place. And, and I don't want to downplay that at all. In fact, many of the, the great spiritual writers of history say one of the important things we can do is to know ourselves, to really be in touch with who we are. But I want to suggest that maybe more important than knowing who we are is whose we are. Maybe more important than knowing who we are is to whom we belong to. And that's, that's what John tells us about Jesus, that he knew he had come from the Father and that he was going back to the Father. And I think that that foundation is what gave him the strength to go through with this whole process, to go through with the cross and betrayal of his friends. He knew where he came from and where he was going. So where do you come from? Where are you going? That's an important question. 
And if you like, let me just suggest that you repeat a few things after me. And I'll say them first so I don't manipulate you. First thing I'm going to have you repeat is, I am made in God's image. Can you say that? I am made in God's image. One more time. I am made in God's image. You're God's idea. You're his icon, his image. Number two, I'm going to ask you to say, I came from God's idea. He thought you and me up. That's pretty cool. I came from God's idea. One more time. I came from God's idea. You're made in God's image. He thought you up. That's a pretty good start to life right there. I'm going to be with God. 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 You're created in His image. You're His idea. And through faith in Christ, you will be with Him for eternity. Jesus knew His hour had come. Jesus knew He would be betrayed. He knew to whom He belonged, where He came from, and where He was going. And this, I think, is what allowed Jesus not only to go to the cross, but to do what He's about to do next. Wash some stinky feet. Now, Jesus is reclining at the table. I want you to get the scene. Not tables like you and I have, but kind of like coffee table height. And um, so the way you do it is like, you'd be down on your left side like this, because you never eat with that left hand. That's for doing, cleaning your body, if you get my drift, with toilet paper. So right hand is the way you eat with. You're on your left side, and here's the table, and all the guys are around this table. You're eating like this, chilling. And um, Jesus is right in the middle of supper. Everyone's eating, and he just does something kind of weird. He gets up. Like, check this out. If you're eating with me, right? Get up. He takes his clothes off. He's got like a little undergarment thing so you don't see everything. But he takes his clothes off. He wraps himself in a towel. And he begins to put water in a basin. He walks around. I imagine the guys are just sitting there like, what the heck is he doing? He starts washing their feet, right? And something interesting that you might want to think about as we just keep telling the story, I probably won't bring it up again, but they were supposed to have their feet washed before the meal. What this tells me is that nobody took the initiative to do it. They didn't have a slave, right, to do this. Everyone was too proud to have washed the feet. So Jesus gets up right in the middle of the meal and starts washing these feet. Peter's shocked. He wants nothing to do with this. You're going to wash my feet? Remember this? He says it right in the scripture. Now there are two levels of meaning going on here. So what I'm going to do is explore the first one and then we'll move to the second one. Okay, so hang with me. First level of meaning. Jesus is turning traditional roles on their head. The master is becoming the servant. The master is showing that he is the slave. In ancient Jerusalem, as with other ancient cities, personal hygiene, that's not even a term. Like, I, I don't think Corey could have a job, dental hygienist. Like, hygiene was not a word. Uh, in, in cities, like, especially downtown Jerusalem, uh, it, you know, the, a big city might have been 100,000. I mean, they're not like our cities today, but still they were dense. And you would live maybe in a, a three to four story building. The rich people, you know how nowadays, like if you're on the top, if you're in the penthouse. In Jesus' day, you were on the bottom because they didn't have anything with water pressure. It was just all gravity fed. So the lower levels would have the running water. Sometimes it would be through a piping system. Sometimes just like an open culvert that would go through one of the rooms of your house. And you would go to the bathroom in that and it would wash away. The poorer people, as they live upstairs, they did not have running water. So they would use a, a, a basin for their bodily functions. And in the morning, they would throw that out the top window, everything into the street. Now, something else about these streets. They didn't have cars, right? Our cars give off air pollution, and we have a big stink about that. But these cars were animals, and they would give a different kind of pollution, right? And they would just drop it right in the street. My whole point here is that the streets are dirty places. 
Okay, and so people are walking with open-toed shoes and you get the picture. Now, when people entered a home, it was customary, of course, to remove those nasty sandals. And typically, if you came into, for example, if you came to my house, the rules of hospitality would be, I would have a slave that would wash your feet. Uh, I wouldn't do it, that's for darn sure. The, the master of the house would never wash somebody else's feet. But you would have a slave do it. And some people, this is not across the board, but I've read some ancient literature where it says that uh, some people actually thought it was beneath a Hebrew slave to do so only a Gentile slave would wash the feet uh, so it just shows you how demeaning and low that this job was like shining deck plates in the engine room right I mean this type of job this washing the feet of all that stuff on the road would definitely like Mike Rowe would be visiting there doing dirty jobs episode dirty jobs fans right he would he would be doing the foot washing episode because it was nasty Mike Rowe seems to like anything with poo in it as well, so he would definitely do that. So by no circumstances would a rabbi, an esteemed teacher, wash somebody's feet. That would be offensive, actually, not only to the rabbi, but to everyone around him for breaking authority barriers. But that is exactly what Jesus does. It's exactly what he does. You know, by wrapping himself in a towel, he's putting on the exact kind of garb a slave wears. He's taking on the role of the slave. That's level one. Jesus, the rabbi, the master, is becoming the slave. Now, on another level, Jesus is performing a task that points to his work on the cross. Check this out. Jesus gets up. He lays down his clothes. He puts on the clothes of a servant. The next time John tells us about Jesus changing his clothes, you know when that is? He's getting beat up and the guards are mocking him and they take off his clothes and lay them aside put on a robe of purple and a crown of thorns and they beat him and mock him and spit on him. And then Pontius Pilate has this broken Jesus and says, Behold the man! That's right before he goes to the cross. The changing of the clothes is kind of a foreshadowing of what's going to happen to Jesus on the cross. But the most significant metaphor here is the water. The water that he's washing with. Water represents the power to cleanse from sin. So when Jesus pours water into the bowl, it, it, it represents more than washing feet, but washing the dirt of sin off of people. And water like that turns an ordinary basin into, wait for it, a Super Bowl. Sorry, Aaron, I had to do it. Come, I told you guys were going to get Super Bowl if you came tonight. Come on! Aaron seriously would not let me do that, but I had to. Yeah, <laughs> that was really bad. Oh, man. Okay, so he's got this water in the bowl, right? And he's doing this metaphor of washing the sin off of people. And Peter at first is shocked. I'm still recovering from that. Okay, uh, Peter at first is shocked. And he wants to refuse Jesus' access to his feet. After all, I mean, I was thinking about this. Like, I've never... I was trying to find a good metaphor. But like, um, oh, I was thinking when Corey goes to get a pedicure once in a while. Like, I've never had a pedicure, but I imagine, you know, when you hire someone to, like, do that on your feet, you're, you, you talk to your girlfriends or gossip or whatever. But you're not thinking about, like, you're not thinking about your feet being exposed or if you've ever had uh, a massage or something like that and you're hiring someone to do this, there's, a, there's kind of a barrier there. But what, what would it feel like for you to expose your feet or your body, your stinky feet, to, to someone who you really respected or someone who knew you intimately? It's a different thing. There's something intimate about exposing those parts of your body to somebody else. There's something intimate about foot washing, especially when Jesus is doing it. And intimacy is, well, intimate. Um, Jesus 
is breaking a barrier with Peter. A barrier of safety that we often have with our superiors. Like, think about your boss, if you have a boss, or maybe you are the boss and your employees, but there's, there's kind of a professional barrier, right? That you can keep them at an arm's length. Everything's fine in the workplace, but you don't talk about a whole lot of personal things. But all of a sudden, your boss is getting into your business. And now Jesus is washing the, the dirt off of your feet. God himself humbles himself to come to our level to wash our feet. There's no place to hide. He gets to see the toe jam and all. He exposes our vulnerability and sees the dirt of sin on our feet. The kind of dirt that we pick up from living life day in and day out as people who make mistakes. In keeping with the metaphor, what would it be like for Jesus to see your feet today? If he could see your sin and shame, would you let him see it? Would you take off your shoes and socks to expose that before him? To let Jesus wash you is the beginning of conversion. It's required, but it's all that is required. To let Jesus wash you is required in following him to wash the sin away, but it is all that's required. See, like Peter, many of us don't like grace very much. Grace makes me feel powerless. Grace makes me feel like I don't have anything to offer. And so I want to do more. I want to go above and beyond. Jesus says, if, you don't, if, if I don't wash your feet, you have no part with me. But Peter wants more than grace. He says, well, fine then, wash me all over. Leslie Newbegin comments, the washing of the feet is a sign of the total overturning of the power of this world in which the majesty of God is made manifest in the menial service of a slave. To accept this is to be converted. Nothing can be added to it. If you imagine that you can add something to what is given in the cross, you delude yourself. To try and add to it would be comparable to supposing one could increase the efficacy of a U-turn. So imagine, oh, a U-turn, that works out really well. I know what I'll do. I'll go 360 degrees. That'll work even better. No, it, it, you're worse off, right? And that's exactly what's going on here is, is Jesus says, if you want to be part of me, you need to let me wash your feet. That's the dirty part. Peter wants to do more. Now, I'm a special guy, Jesus. I can do more for you. Wash me all clean. Do you ever try to add to the cross thinking that maybe grace isn't good enough? That Maybe grace is good for those normal people, but I've got something extra to offer. We can't add to the cross. We just need our feet washed. And we need our feet washed quite often. Because it's, if you're like me, you're always walking in crap. <laughs> say that too. So Jesus is communicating on two levels here. He is Lord and servant at the same time. There's no distinction there. That is one and the same. And Jesus serves by washing away our sin. So remember my first question. What does it mean for Jesus to be Lord and God? It means that God is a servant. It means that God is a God who serves. He isn't acting like one. He is one. He isn't trying to look like a servant. He's just being himself. In John chapter 12, Jesus says, He who sees me sees the one who sent me. And all through John, Jesus is saying, I come from the Father. I'm sent from the Father. So he who sees me sees the one who sent me. I'm looking at this John 13 and I'm seeing Jesus take his clothes off and do the, the lowest of the low job that you can do 
And what he's saying is, when I see that, I see God. And you need to let that sink in a minute, because it's easy to get a misperception of God the Father as being this untouchable, domineering power. You know, a lot of people think that about God. This angry, vengeful God. When we see Jesus washing the feet, we see God. So to be like Christ is to serve. And that's another reason why Jesus' behavior is so shocking to Peter, and I imagine to the other guys too. Because disciples, that's another, that's another name for student, a disciple. They're expected to imitate their master, their rabbi. So, you, you follow me? Jesus now is their master. He's washing the feet, doing something that even Hebrew slaves didn't even like doing. If they've got to copy that, that means nothing's out of the question now. There is no job too low for a disciple of Christ. Ouch! This would have been absolutely scandalous to them. And it, it's scandalous because to them, it was Jesus stooping to a level below what he should have been. But to Jesus, it wasn't stooping at all. It was him being himself and showing us who God really is. You know, oftentimes uh, we speak of servant leadership. If you've taken kind of, well, any leadership course, but especially in Christian leadership, there's this servant leadership idea. And the idea is, well, you know, you get people to follow by doing these lowly tasks. And, uh, you know, is, in the end, it can kind of be this self-serving style of leadership. Service becomes a means to an end in a way. Other times we serve when it's convenient. You know, if you were to ask me, if I, if I were to ask you, hey, do you think I wash feet, quote-unquote, uh, you'd say, oh yeah, Chris, you're a good guy. I see you take out the trash sometimes after worship, and you know, you're, you're a likable guy, or you're always there when I need you. Yeah, but what about when you're not looking? Then what am I like? Right? Like, you guys don't get to see me in the middle of the night when Stella's waking up, and I'm pretending to be asleep, hoping that Corey will go deal with it, even though it's my turn, until she knees me in the kidney, and I'm, ah, man, she can really kick. But, uh, you know, the, that, that's, that's foot washing is when it's not convenient. There's no advantage there. It's just the right thing to do. Why does it take repeated knees to my kidneys to get me out of bed? Because, because I'm selfish. Sometimes I have good times, and sometimes I don't. And when I fail to wash feet, that's when I need my feet washed by Jesus. Right? I fall back on grace because I'm just like you, I suspect. I get it wrong a lot of the time. Now, you know what's absolutely amazing to me in this story is that Jesus washes all their feet, even Judas's feet. The guy who in like 24 hours less than that actually is going to betray him to the authorities. How and why can Jesus do this? I'm thinking about this like, seriously, put yourself in that situation. Could you do it? And also remember, you're not just Jesus. You're like, I mean, Jesus is God. I mean, he could totally like zap Judas or something or... I don't know, do something mean to him, fuse his feet together when he's washing them, I don't know, so you have to hop. I think of all these kind of things, I don't know. Uh, how is Jesus able to pull this off with any kind of integrity? Here's what I think. John already told us, Jesus knows whose he is, that he came from the Father, that he's going back to the Father. You know, think about that for real. If we really lived on that foundation, there's really nothing that can happen to us that we can't handle. Because we're secure. We know that we're loved by God, that we come from Him, and that we're returning to Him. Jesus is not serving others to bolster His reputation or to be liked. He serves because it's His nature to serve. Service is the point. He reveals the Father, and the, to be the Father is to serve. To be like Christ, then, is to serve. Period. 
So, what does it mean for me, for you, to be a disciple of Jesus? It means we imitate Him. It means we serve and no service is too low. Jesus says, you call me teacher and Lord, and you're right, for so I am. If I then, the Lord and teacher, washed your feet, then you also ought to wash my feet. No, he doesn't say that. He doesn't say, Jim, wash your feet, now you wash mine. This is really interesting, actually. I don't know if you've caught this. In my family, it was, uh, you rub my back, I rub yours. I said, when I grew up, that was kind of the thing. No, Jesus doesn't say, I washed your feet, now you wash mine. He says, I washed your feet. Now you should wash one another's feet. I washed your feet. I am the Lord and the teacher. You're right, I am. But I did this for you. Now you should do it for one another. Friends, the world needs to see you and I washing each other's feet. The world needs to see us washing the feet of our friends and neighbors outside the walls of church. This is the good news. This is what Jesus has called us to. You know, Leslie Newbegin, he's just got a great commentary on John. And he says that, Your neighbor, my neighbor, is the authorized recipient of what we owe Jesus. Like we come to Jesus, I I just want to do something for you, Lord, because you've washed my feet, you've died for me. What can I do for you? You know what he says? Eric Frazier is authorized to receive on my behalf. Jeannie Wagner, Chris, Jeannie Wagner is authorized to receive what you owe me on my behalf. Charlotte, is re- she's the designated recipient. for You, you pay her and I'll, I'll get it. See, see what I'm saying? Jesus is leveling the playing field. Solidarity. None of us is above the other. You call me teacher and Lord and you're right for so I am. Now wash one another's feet. If you know these things, you're blessed if you do them. So what does it look like? And this is a question that we need to wrestle with. And I just want to propose that we not let this just stay here in a, in a mental level. Discuss it with a, with a friend uh, while we're having food in there. Discuss it at your small group. Take this to the next level because it takes creativity. What does it look like in our culture to wash each other's feet? We don't have nasty roads anymore. That's not part of our culture, right? Like I've got sweat wicking smart wool socks on my feet are pretty darn good looking I think you know so that's not a really big deal I don't really want you to come over to my house and wash my feet what is the equivalent today what is the lowest thing how could we really serve each other what does it look like if foot washing is not just physical but it's also forgiveness what does it look like for us to really be forgiving one another what is it to serve sacrificially you know and sometimes it's simple things the week before I went to Denver the family was sick. I wasn't sick, but I had all these meetings to go to. And uh, the Wassermans were going through a bunch of stuff with sickness and death in the family. And so Jeannie Wagner, she makes a huge pot of her delicious soup, and she's going to bring it to the Wasserman. She, she thinks, hey, Chris, do you think Corey and the girls would mind if I brought over some soup? Heck no. So she brings over soup. I mean, I'm sorry to embarrass you, but I'm, th- this is going above and beyond. You know, it's not rocket science. Could this be washing feet? I don't know. I'm throwing it out there. When I'm in Denver, I get a tearful phone call that our back door won't latch because I'm a bonehead and I didn't put the deadbolt in like I said I would over and over. And now Corey can't get it to lock and she can't sleep. Frank Hodge comes over and puts one of those chain things on there so Corey can sleep at night. Okay? This is somebody covering my boneheadedness, my sin, and also doing something that's like washing feet. This is Jen Teets coming over to help with the kids while I'm at Denver for eight days and Corey can actually go out get a breath of fresh air. This is the kind of things going on in this body that I see. But what else could we do? What, how, what does it look like for us to wash feet? So let me challenge each of us to think about this in our context. 
You know, because I have a lot of great ideas, of course. You know, I'm a, I'm a preacher. That's what I do. I, I, I have lists. Oh, this would be like washing feet. But I fear that if I gave us a list of things to do, of things that I think equals foot washing, what it does is it stifles your creativity. It doesn't respect your context. So I think we need to think on our own. Okay, so I'm not going to give us a list. But wrestle with it. Don't be one of those messages that goes in one ear and out the other. Talk to somebody about it. Let me just encourage you to do that. It's incredible that the God of the universe so humbles himself to do the lowest of the low job. To give his life for us. And then he's calling us to do it for each other. If we do that for each other on a, on a consistent basis, what a witness to the world that would be. I'm just going to put a comma on this sermon. I'm not going to just like stop. But what we're going to do now is transition to our time of prayers for healing. Something we do once a month. And basically, it's an expression of what we believe, that God hears and answers prayer. 